Gospel of Matthew chapter 1. Gospel of, of Matthew, written primarily to a, a Jude, Jewish audience, goes into great lengths to show how, how this one born in Bethlehem was indeed the promised Messiah that they had been long awaiting, exactly what that song in many ways is, 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 is sharing with us, this anticipation of this one who would ransom Israel. And if you remember, if you look at the very beginning of, of Matthew, you'll see that he starts his gospel with a genealogy that goes from Abraham to David, and then from David all the way down to the Messiah. He's showing that, that he indeed is the fulfillment of the covenant promises made to Abraham, as well as the covenant promises made to David, this king. Well, as we go into Matthew, there had been uh, silence for 400 years. God had not sent a prophet. And the, there was this, this desire and anticipation of the Messiah. Where was, when was he going to come? And then we see in the Gospel of Luke that an angel appears to Zechariah. And the angel tells Zechariah that he's going to have a son. And that son is going to prepare the way for the Messiah. He's going to be the forerunner for the Messiah, speaking of John the Baptist. And then the angel appears to Mary and she tells, he tells Mary that, that she is going to have a baby, even though she's a virgin, and that baby is going to be the long-awaited Messiah. And as we pick up in Matthew chapter 1 today, we're going to see the angel visiting Joseph. I'm going to begin in verse 18. This is the word of the Lord. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David. See that linking him back to David? Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. Let's pray. Our glorious Lord, this is your word, and we are humbled that you would condescend to speak to us. Lord, we know that, that our minds are so prone to wonder. We know that we have so many things that are going on in all of our lives, especially around this time of year. But Lord, we are asking for your grace today to, to focus our attention on you and, and our glorious Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
I pray, Lord, today that you would grant me grace to preach your word in the power of your spirit. For, Lord, my words can do absolutely nothing to a heart. But it is your word, soaked in your power, that can transform and change. And so we ask for that today. We depend upon you for it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Anna. A name that triggered a flood of emotions in Boris's heart. You see, Boris was a young, strapping Soviet soldier who had returned from duty. And when Boris was, had returned from duty, he met a young lady by the name of Anna, and they fell in love. After spending uh, just a short period of time together, knowing that Boris would have to return to duty, the couple married hastily, quickly. And after they married, they spent three precious nights together before his departure back to the battlefield during World War II. But soon after he left, something totally unexpected happened. Stalin ordered that everyone in Anna's village, including her and her family, would be purged and they would be sent to another village far, far away. Well, when Boris returned from the battlefront, no doubt longing to see his, his precious wife, he was crushed to find that she was no longer there and her village had been abandoned. He searched frantically for her, exhausting every avenue that he had to try to find his beloved wife, but to no avail. The years passed, decades piled on decades, piled on decades, but no Anna. Roughly 60 years later, Boris, perhaps in a one last ditch effort to try to find his beloved wife that he hadn't seen in over 60 years, he went back to the village that they met in. He went back to the home that Anna, where, where she was raised as a child. And as he pulled up to the home, he noticed that there, there was a woman standing outside of the house looking directly at the house. Boris steps out of his car and he shuts the door. And as he shuts the door, the woman is startled. She turns around and looks at him with a familiar gaze. Could it be? Could it be his beloved Anna? Well, tears began to well up in the, in the woman's eyes. And Boris, with all of the speed that his 80-year-old bones could muster, ran to his, his wife and said, My darling, I've been waiting you for you so long. My wife, my life. Up until that day, and certainly after that day, Anna was a name that Boris could not think of or speak of without being moved in the deepest recesses of his heart. Certain names can do that to us, can't they? They can do that to us. The mere mention of names of people that are precious to us can flood our hearts and our minds with sweet memories and stir up our affections. See, right now we're in a, a series that's leading up to Christmas where we're looking at the names and, and titles of, of Christ that's given to this extraordinary baby that's born in Bethlehem. Names that, if we're thinking rightly about them, should trigger really amazing and astounding thoughts. And they should trigger uh, affections in us which should lead us to joy-filled worship for the names that we're going to be going over. And the name that we're going to be looking over today should do exactly that. It should lead us to joy-filled worship. And the name that we're going to be looking at today is Emmanuel. 
Emmanuel. Here's what I want you to take away today. The main point, I want you to focus your thoughts on what Emmanuel means. We're going to talk about that. And why that is astounding. We're going to talk about that too. And let that drive you to joy-filled worship. So let's jump in. What does Emmanuel mean? What does it signify? What what is it meant to communicate uh, to us about this extraordinary child that's been born in Bethlehem? Well, Matthew quotes Isaiah chapter 7 for us. The, 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 The scripture reading that we had this morning was from Isaiah chapter 7. And this is what Matthew is quoting in verse 23. He says this, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So that's what Emmanuel means. It means God with us. And if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you probably knew that. If you've grown up in the church, you've probably heard the name Emmanuel just about every Christmas season, and you've probably been told it means God with us every Christmas season. But if we're not careful, we can miss what that name is meant to communicate to us. We can miss the gravity of it. We can miss the weightiness of what this mysterious name, Emmanuel, is meant to signify. So let's ask the question, in what sense is Jesus Emmanuel? In what sense is Jesus God with us? Well, does it mean that God is with us wherever we go and whatever we do? Right? Well, that's certainly true. It's certainly true that God is omnipresent if you know that word, that he's present at every point of space with his entire being, that he's everywhere. And as, as R.C. Sproul likes to say, that, that, that we live life quorum Deo. We live life in, in the very presence of God, in the very face of God. God is with us no matter where we go, no matter how high we go or how, how low we go. God is with us. He sees even to our very thoughts. But that's not what the name Emmanuel is meant to signify primarily. How about this? Does it mean that God's special presence dwells with His people? Is that what it means? Think about how God dwelled in the midst of His people Israel. First in the camp of Israel, in the tabernacle, and then eventually in the temple. Remember how He dwelled with them behind the curtain in the Holy of Holies, uh, on top of the Ark of the Covenant between the cherubim? Right? If you remember that the glory of God signifying His presence, how it filled the tabernacle in Exodus 40, and then eventually it filled the temple in, in, uh, in 2 Chronicles 7 when Solomon dedicated the temple, signifying again His presence with them. It's certainly true, right? That God did dwell with His people. He dwelt with them in the midst of His people before Christ was born. God was with them. And it's certainly true. That from his birth to his ascension into heaven, that God the Son dwelled in the midst of his people. God was with them. But that's not the fullness of what the name Emmanuel is meant to communicate to us. It's deeper than that. So what does it mean? Well, I want you to look at the context with me in in, in Matthew chapter 1, the verse that we read a little bit earlier. You see, Mary was pregnant. And I I would imagine that Joseph was probably pretty crushed as he found out that his betrothed wife, that he was was not yet uh, what we would consider fully married yet, but in a really intense engagement. I guess that's a good way to, to, to describe it. That he was not there yet, and yet he found out that his his wife was was soon to be wife was pregnant. And that in his mind that could only mean one thing, that she had been unfaithful. 
And if you remember, as it said in our text today, that he resolved to divorce her quietly, but then the angel Gabriel appeared to him. And the angel Gabriel said this to Joseph, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. In other words, Joseph, no human being has fertilized that egg in Mary. It wasn't done by your seed. It wasn't done by another man's seed. No, she wasn't unfaithful to you. It was done by God himself. Do you remember Mary's response, by the way, in Luke, when she heard that she was going to be pregnant with the Messiah? She says this, how will this be since I'm a virgin? She's saying, I, you know, I may be young, but I know how this biology thing works. My mama and daddy, they've told me about the birds and the bees. And I will tell you, Gabriel, that there's not been any bees swarming near me ever. So Gabriel looks at, explains to her, he says, no, 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 the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Why was it necessary for the child to be miraculously conceived by God instead of naturally conceived by man? Well, this verse gives us a hint. It's because he had to be holy. He had to be holy. If he came naturally through a man, he would inherit the two things that every single human being has inherited since the fall of Adam. Adam's guilt and Adam's corrupted nature. And that would have disqualified him from, from saving anyone right on day one. But in the wisdom of God and by the power of God and according to the plan of God, he was conceived and he indeed was holy. Picking back up in the Gospel of Matthew, Gabriel says this to Joseph in verse 21, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place. All what took place? That God conceived a son in the virgin womb of Mary. That all of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, speaking of Isaiah. Behold, which means to pay attention. This is incredibly important. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And then Matthew explains, which means God with us. See, this human son that's conceived by the Holy Spirit is also God. God with us. Emmanuel. This answers our question. What does it mean that God is with us? It means that God is with us in our humanity. The greatest mystery in the world brought to light in this one glorious name, Emmanuel. God in flesh with us. God in human form with us. God in the same nature with us. See, the name Emmanuel is pointing us not just to the fact that, that God is dwelling in the midst of His people, but it's pointing us to this wonder-inducing, glory-deserving doctrine of the incarnation, that the eternal Son of God, the Creator of all things, the agent of creation, including human beings, became a human being just like us. The Gospel of John begins with these words, in the beginning, speaking at the time of creation, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, speaking of God the Father. 
And the Word was not only with God, and the Word was God, speaking of God the Son. And then in verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. See, God the Son became flesh. He became a human so that He is now both God and man, the God-man. That's Emmanuel. You may remember a great description of the incarnation that Paul gives in uh, his letter to the Philippians. And he's using the incarnation that what Jesus would do in, in humbling himself to take on a human nature as an example for the Philippians of what self-denying love towards others looks like. And he writes this, he says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, he was fully God. That's what that means. Did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped. In other words, he was, he was equal with God the Father. They equally share the divine nature, but Jesus didn't exploit that for his, for his own selfish gain. But he emptied himself. How did he do that? By taking the form of a servant. What do you mean, Paul? Being born in the likeness of men. See, he emptied himself, not of his divine nature, not of his divine attributes. No, he emptied himself by becoming a human and being found in a human form. He was fully human. So fully God and he's fully human. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. See, in that manger on that quiet night in Bethlehem was no ordinary child. No, no, no. This one had existed forever in his divine nature, but yet at the same time, he had just been born in his human nature. Totally God, yet totally man. Truly divine, yet truly human. So what does Emmanuel mean? And you can fill this in your blank on, on your, if you're using your bulletin. It means God incarnate with us. God in flesh with us. God in, in, in our humanity with us, in our same nature as us. Let me ask you this morning. Does that stir you to the core? Does it stir you to the core? Does it kindle the fire of your affections that God would do such a thing for you? Or is it about as moving to you as standing in the line at your local DMV? For some people, it is that. You see, there's so much that we could say about the incarnation this morning. We could talk about things like the hypostatic union, how the divine nature and the human nature of Christ came together in perfect union in that one person, Jesus Christ, so that they are without confusion, without division, without separation, without change. We could talk about that. But I want to take us in a different direction today. I want to take us in a direction where I want to spend the rest of the time that we have together seeking to stoke the embers of your affections by reminding you of why Emmanuel should be sweeter to your soul than your Aunt Betsy's Christmas cookies are to your mouth. Why is Emmanuel, God incarnate with us, so astounding? Why is it so shocking? I want to offer you five focal points to focus your mind on, your meditations on this Christmas season about Emmanuel. Five affection-kindling truths that should drive every Christian to joy-filled worship. Let's jump in. The first focal point is the fulfillment. 
Emmanuel answers the question, who is this one? You see, that's the question that had been looming over God's people for for thousands of years. It's the question that the Old Testament is asking over and over and over again. Who is this one? Who is this one that God promised would be the seed of the woman whose heel would be bruised, but yet he would crush the head of the serpent in Genesis 3.15? This one who would conquer Satan and rescue God's people from the dreadful consequences of Adam's sin who would lift the curse of death, who would bring God's people back to unhindered fellowship with Him like that which was lost and left behind in the Garden of Eden. Who is He? Who is this one that God promised in Genesis 12, 3 to Abraham who would come through His offspring and would bless all the families of the earth, who would bring unimaginable and undeserved blessing not just to Abraham's offspring, the Jews, but to people from from all people groups all over the world in all periods of time. As many as there are stars in the sky, who is He? Who is this one in Deuteronomy 18.15 that Moses said would be a prophet that was coming after Him? who would speak the very words of God, who would His people, God's people would actually listen to. Who is He? Who is this one that God promised in 2 Samuel 7 that would be a king occupying the throne of David? Not just for 20 years, not for 50 years, not for 100 years, but forever. Who is He? Who is this one that God promised in Psalm 110 would be a priest according to the order of Melchizedek? Again, not for 20 or 40 or 60 or 100 years, but forever. Who is he? As we saw last week, who's this one that God promised in Isaiah 53 would be the suffering servant who would be pierced for his people's sins, his crushed for their iniquities? who would not just come to offer a priestly sacrifice, but who would actually be that sacrifice, who would die as a substitute for His people, but then be brought back to life again. Who is He? You see, that's the question that had been looming over God's people for thousands of years. Who is this one? Who is He? And Emmanuel answers that question with a shocking revelation, and I don't want you to miss this. This one is God. It's God. All along, God had been promising Himself, specifically God the Son, that God the Son would come in human flesh, that God would crush the head of the serpent, that God would bless all the families of the earth, that God would be the prophet that Moses spoke about, that God would be the priest forever, that God would be the king forever, that God would be the suffering servant. And He would do it all by taking the, the form of a human just like you and me, taking on a human nature just like ours. That is Emmanuel, God with us. And if that won't stir you, I really don't know what will. Moving on. Second focal point, the humiliation. Emmanuel is a reminder that no one has ever traveled a greater distance for you. When we think of that word humiliation, we think things, words like shame and loss of dignity and dishonor come to mind. Humiliation does not hold typically a positive connotation. It's typically negative Nobody wants to be humiliated. You remember 
when he, King Nebuchadnezzar was humiliated. If you remember that, he was the mighty king of Babylon. No greater king on the earth. No greater power on the earth. He was walking on the rooftop of his royal palace one day. He was looking at his kingdom. And he basically says something to the effect to himself, Wow, look at all this that I have built for the glory of my own majesty. And the Lord sees him in his pride and he brings swift judgment upon him. And in Daniel 4.33, we see a very humbling experience that God brought upon King Nebuchadnezzar. It says this, He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox. And his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. From the most powerful king on the earth, down to a homeless, animal-like, raving madman. Now that's a long distance to travel on the road of humiliation, isn't it? But that ain't nothing in comparison to the distance that the eternal Son of God traveled in His humiliation. In John, John chapter 17, in His high priestly prayer, Jesus speaks about this glory that He had with the Father before the foundation of the world. You see, in heaven, His glory was displayed. It was evident and it was recognized by the Father and the Holy Spirit and their glory was recognized by Him. A glory that made the height of King Nebuchadnezzar's glory look like garbage in comparison. And he left all of that to travel the greatest distance that anyone has ever traveled on the road of humiliation. From that glory being displayed to being born as a human being. From that glory to a filth, filthy germ-infested feeding trough. From that glory to the miseries of this life in this fallen world. From that glory to being pinned to a splintery wooden cross. From that glory to being consumed with the wrath of God for the sins of His people. From that glory to death and being under the power of death for a time. See, that's from the highest of highs to the lowest of lows. No one has ever traveled a greater distance in humiliation for you. And let me just say the next three focal points that we're going to look at are going to really just be working out this humiliation. But to, 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 to be able to study his humiliation more, I want to point you to Westminster Shorter Catechism. Uh, question number 27, that's a great place to spend some time over the next couple of weeks leading up to Christmas. Third focal point, the empathizer. Emmanuel is a reminder that God can relate to you. What do I mean by that? See, God the Son didn't just condescend to speak to us. God the Son didn't just con condescend to, to, to be close, become closer in proximity to us. No, He condescended to take on the fullness of our humanity, the fullness of human experience. Do you think that God can't relate to you? Do you think that God is too far off, that He can never understand what you're going through and what you're experiencing? Then you either don't know God or you haven't thought very deeply about Emmanuel, God with us. The author of Hebrews, explaining the necessity of the incarnation for salvation, writes this in Hebrews chapter 2. He says, Therefore, He had to be made like his brothers in just a couple of respects. Just a few respects. No. 
He had to be made like his brothers in every respect. We'll look at the rest of that verse later. He was not, what that tells us is that he was not half human. He was not three quarters human. He was fully human. He didn't experience 50% of what humans typically experience. No, he experienced every category of what you and I experience except sin. Let me ask you today, are you grieving? Are you in sorrow? Is there someone that you've, you've lost that you're grieving over? Emmanuel knows what that's like. Emmanuel has, has felt the aching pain of grief as tears streamed down his face as he stood at the graveside of his good friend Lazarus. Isaiah, tell, Isaiah tells us, as Jeff showed us last, last week, that he was a man of sorrows and he was acquainted with grief. You better, know what he, you better believe he knows what grief is like. Are you fearful about something? Are you anxious about something? Are you worried about something? <laughs> he knows what that like, that's like. He's felt the floodwaters of fear and anxiety engulf him as he stared in the face of the impending wrath of God in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's been in so much unfathomable distress, so much that, that blood dripped from the pores of his skin. He knows what fear and anxiety are like. Are you experiencing tension in a relationship? Is something going a little rough and rocky in a relationship that you have. He's felt that. He's felt the intense sting of being stabbed in the back by one of his best friends, Judas. He's, he's felt being hated without cause by the very people that he came to give his life for. But not only does he know rocky relationships, he also knows extravagant forgiveness. As the very ones who crucified him, he can hang on the cross and he can say, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. You in physical pain? Maybe it's an injury. Maybe it's a sickness, something going on, a health condition. You better believe he knows what that's like. He's felt the excruciating pain of having his flesh ripped off his back and flogging. He's had blunt trauma to his hands as nails were driven through them on the cross. He knows what it's like to not breathe. And to have suffocation as, as cru crucifixion was famous to impart. He knows what physical pain's like. How about temptations? Surely Jesus was never tempted. It's not what it says, is it? It says he was tempted as every way and we are, as we are except without sin. He knows what it's like to be weak, not having eaten for 40 days and being tempted by Satan himself. And he didn't skirt out of it. He didn't relieve himself from that, the difficulty and the intensity of that, of that temptation by, by sinning. No, he endured the full course of that temptation without giving in. So if you're struggling with temptation, he, trust me, he knows how that feels. Are you or someone you love on the brink of death? He's tasted death. He's done it all. He knows what it's like to be thirsty. He knows what it's like to be hungry. He knows what it's like to be tired and weary. He's not a God who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. And if you're trusting Him, He is a merciful high priest. We're going to look at that in a little bit. He's a merciful high priest. Why? Because He, he can have empathy with you. 
He's experienced many of the same things as you have, except now he, as the merciful high priest, invites you to his throne of grace that you might receive mercy and find grace to help in your time of need in whatever human weakness you're going through. Emmanuel, the empathizer, can relate to you and help you. Meditate on that this Christmas. Fourth focal point, the concealment. Emmanuel is a reminder that hidden in that fragile human body was the glorious God in His white, hot holiness. You see, His body was unimpressive. It was ordinary. There was nothing about it that even hinted that He was God. There was nothing about His body that even hinted that He was glorious. In Isaiah 53 last week, you may remember that Jeff shared with us that he had no form or majesty that we should look at him. Implication and say, wow, there's God. Or, wow, that's a very important one. And no beauty that we should desire him. See, no, 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 no. His glory and his majesty was concealed behind that frail human frame. I want you to grasp, try to grasp the weight of this with me for a moment. Think about what often happened, how God often revealed himself to people in the Old Testament. He, he revealed himself with, with created things, visible created things that people could see. Things like this, things like thick clouds, billowing smoke, blazing fire, rumbling thunder, crashing lightning, lightning. Impressive things that all pointed to his glory. Now think about what happened when this holy one would reveal himself to these unholy people that he would be in the presence of. Typically wasn't a very pleasant experience, was it? Think about this. Remember his presence, how his presence at Mount Sinai in the giving of the Ten Commandments, his law, caused the people of Israel to tremble with fear. They were so afraid that they told Moses, they said, you speak to us, Moses, and we'll listen to you, but don't let God speak to us lest we die. You see, even their unholy ears were too uncomfortable to hear the holy voice of God. Remember how God's holy presence in the commissioning of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6, how that caused Isaiah to feel just how doomed he was, just how filthy he was because of his own sin. And you remember what he does? He doesn't even wait for God to pronounce a judgment on him. He just pronounces it on himself. He says, woe is me, for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King the Lord of hosts. Maybe you're here today and you say, Corey, come on, that's Old Testament stuff. That wasn't Jesus. You realize who Isaiah was catching a glimpse of there? The Apostle John tells us in John chapter 12 that it was Jesus. It was Jesus that Isaiah saw. It was Jesus that caused him to, to pronounce a curse on himself because he was so holy and Isaiah was so not. The pre-incarnate Jesus, God the Son, before He became a human being. Isn't it astounding, the concealment of it all? Think about this, that when Jesus was born, He didn't come out surrounded by blazing fire or blinding light. He was quite ordinary, just like a baby that would be here in our midst. Isn't it astounding that when Joseph and Mary heard His cries... That he didn't cover their unholy ears like, like Israel at Mount Sinai. 
Isn't it astounding that when their unholy hands touched him and picked him up, that they weren't consumed by his wrath like Uzzah when he touched the Ark of the Covenant where God's special presence dwelled? Isn't it astounding that the holy, pure Son of God would come down into a world where He would be surrounded by the stench of sin and sinners and not consume them in His wrath. That's not astounding to you. May I make a suggestion? Could it be because you really don't know the God that you claim to know? Could it be that you've bought into the false God of the world that loves to paint God in a different way than he paints himself in his word? See, one of the greatest deceptions in our, in our generation and in so many churches in our generation is just how repulsive sin is to our holy God. And I've used this illustration before, but I'm going to use it again. Think about it this way. Put a bunch of serial, serial killers in the same room and they're probably not all that repulsed by each other. Why is that? Well, because they're all alike. They all have similar natures. But introduce into that same room the mothers of the victims that they killed. And I will assure you the dynamic will completely change. The nature of those killers is repulsive to those mothers who have been injured by their crimes. See, our nature as sinners is infinitely more repulsive than that, than that to a holy God. And if we don't grasp this one truth, we will miss the gravity, the weightiness, the amazingness of the incarnation. So let's think about it for a moment. You want to you know how repulsive your sin is to God? Let me point you in two places. Pick up your Bible first. Well, I'm not really wanting you to pick up your Bibles. But when you have time, pick up your Bible and read about hell. You want to see how repulsed God is about sin? It's a place of eternal torment reserved for sinners as a payment for their sins. And it's never ending. It's forever. Where the never ending occupation of its inhabitants is not parties, but weeping and gnashing of teeth in agony. That's how repulsive sin is to a holy God. The second place I want to point you is to the cross. The night before his crucifixion, we see a side of Jesus that we see nowhere else in the Gospels. He's keenly aware of the wrath of God that is about to consume his soul for the sins of his people. And he says this, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. I'm so sorrowful I'm getting ready to die. Now, because of sorrow. And he fell on his face and he prayed, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. What is he talking about? He's talking about the cup of God's wrath that's stored up for the sins of his people. In the next day, Jesus would be pinned to a cross, naked, bearing the sins of His people. And about noon, darkness would come on the land. And, and when that happened, the Niagara Falls of God's wrath would come crushing down on Jesus and His Son in judgment for His people's sins. So do not be deceived, my friends, at how repulsive sin is to God. 
That's what makes the incarnation so shocking and so, so astounding. That from the moment of His incarnation, taking on a human nature, until the moment of His ascension into heaven, that Jesus would be surrounded by a people whose sinful nature was naturally repulsive to His holy nature. How, how, how repulsive? Hell repulsive. Cross repulsive. Yet, He restrained His wrath. And He didn't just restrain his wrath and grin and bear it. He says he was meek and he was gracious and he was forbearing towards sinners, even stooping down to the level of washing his disciples' feet like the lowest of servants. That's shocking. That's Emmanuel. His, the concealment of it all is amazing. But let's ask the question, why would he do such a thing? And that leads us to the fifth focal point, the purpose. Emmanuel is a reminder that the incarnation was necessary for your salvation. As amazing as it is, as the eternal Son of God would take on a human nature and we experience many of the same things that you and I experienced, that wasn't the purpose Look what the rest of that verse in Hebrews says that we looked at a little earlier. Therefore, he, speaking of God the Son, had to be made like his brothers in every respect. He had to become fully human. Why? So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. Now, I want you to think back with a moment with me, for a moment with me, with the, the, the drama of the Day of Atonement, Israel's Day of Atonement, where the one day a year that any human being and only the high priest could step foot into the Holy of Holies, where God's special presence resided between the cherubim above the mercy seat. This was a goosebump-inducing experience. A fearful endeavor as a sinner being the high priest would approach the holy God. The high priest would first undergo a series of, of elaborate rituals, cleansing and bathing and putting on special garments in pre preparation to enter into God's holy presence. And as the high priest stepped behind the veil, you remember what he brought with him? He would brought, brought with him two sacrifices, two animal sacrifices and the blood of them, I should say. The first was blood was to atone for his own sins, and then a little bit later to atone for the, all of the sins of the people of Israel. And he took the blood and he sprinkled it on the mercy seat, and God accepted the death of the animals as a substitute for the deserved death of the people of Israel because of their sins. That's a great Old Testament lesson, Corey. But what does that have to do with Emmanuel? Answer, everything. Everything. All of this was a picture of what Emmanuel would come to do. All of this was a shadow of the reality of what took place on the cross. You see, the Day of Atonement that occurred every year was a shadow of the real Day of Atonement that was to come, where Emmanuel would suffer and die on the cross to atone for the sins of his people. That was the Day of Atonement that all the others were pointing to. 
He had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. Why? To make propitiation, that is a payment to satisfy God's wrath. We've been looking at that in Romans. To make propitiation for the sins of his people. He had to be human. He had to be fully human. He had to be human to be a merciful high priest, as we've already seen. One who has gone through many of the same things that we have gone through. One who can empathize with our weaknesses. He had to be human though. He had to be human to be a faithful high priest. One who was clean and sinless. One who who is completely faithful to God the Father. Who lived in perfect obedience to the law. And thereby qualified to bring a sacrifice into not the earthly holy of holies. But into the the one that was a copy of. Which is into the heavenly holy of holies where God dwelled. He says that he had to be made human to make propitiation for the sins of his people. A payment to satisfy God's wrath. What is the payment to satisfy God's wrath for sin? Well, he tells us in Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is what? Death. Yes, physical death, but also the second death, which is hell where the wrath of God is, is poured out on sinners as a payment for their sins forever. You see, he had to be made human to pay the wages of sin, physical death. Why? Because God can't die. But a human can. He had to be human. Yet at the same time, he had to be human in order to pay for hell for his people because humans represent humans. Yet at the same time, he also had to be God to be able to suffer under the magnanimous measure of the wrath of God that was reserved for his people. No human being in himself could could take such a thing. That wrath of God that would have been poured out on people forever, that measure put on Christ on the cross. You see, that's the purpose for Emmanuel. That's the purpose for God incarnate with us. Strung naked on that dreadful cross was none other than the God-man. It was the day of atonement. And the high priest was offering the sacrifice of himself for the sins of his people. We're told that darkness crept over the land from noon to three o'clock. Jesus had become a curse for his people. The terrifying wrath of God for his people was consuming him instead of them. And after he had paid it in full, he cried out the sweetest words, It is finished. The wrath of God satisfied, the debt paid in full, and he breathed his last breath and he died. And then Matthew tells us that something quite remarkable happened. It says that the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Remember that curtain on the Day of Atonement that the high priest would enter behind, would step behind once a year to offer that atoning sacrifice? It was ripped from heaven down to earth, from top to bottom. Why? Because everything that the Day of Atonement and the ceremonial law in general had pictured had now been fulfilled. The high priest had come and offered the sacrifice of himself that would actually satisfy the wrath of God for the sins of his people. And then on the third day, we are told that Emmanuel rose from the dead, an undeniable sign from God that it's all true. And if you're trusting in him, It's also a sign and a foretaste of your deliverance when your body, like His, will be resurrected from the dead. 
See, this was the purpose for the incarnation. This was the purpose for Emmanuel, the purpose for God the Son taking on a human nature to offer the sacrifice that would lift the death sentence for His people and bring them back to God. And if you belong to His people today, this should fuel the fire of your affections forever and ever and ever. This should fuel your your worship for Him, thinking that your God would go to such lengths for you. Maybe you're here today and you you say, well, how, how do you even know? How do I know if I belong to God? How do I know if I belong to His people that He died for? Well, let me ask you this question. Have you been born again? What's that? Well, let me ask you a series of questions that'll answer that question. First, do you hate your sin? Do you hate it? Are you uncomfortable with your sin? Is it like the worst Christmas sweater ever that is so itchy and nasty and all you want to do is just take it off? You want to get rid of it? Are you turning from your sin by God's grace? Do you know you're hopeless to save yourself by your own record, your own good deeds? Do you know that everything you do, whether it's coming to church on Sunday or whether it's being baptized or taking communion, do you know that none of that actually makes you right before God? Do you know that? Are you trusting in Christ and Christ alone for your salvation? Are you trusting in His righteousness, the righteousness that God requires to be in His presence? Are you trusting that that is not yours, but that's His? Are you trusting in His righteousness for God's acceptance? Are you actively seeking to keep His commandments because you love Him? Motivated out of love, I, can't, I want to keep God's commandments because I love Him. If you are, that's great evidence that you've been born again. If you can answer yes to those questions, and, and yes, you can, you can claim what Christ accomplished on the cross, what the high priest did on that cross for His people. You can, you can know and be sure that indeed, I belong to His people and my sins are dealt with and paid and I'm reconciled to God. But if you can't say yes to those questions, I want to love you enough to tell you that you are in a dire, dire circumstance right now. That you're still in your sins. That the wrath of God still abides on you. That if you die right now, you will indeed go to hell. You will. Not what I say, what the Word says. You will go to hell. And I don't want that for you. But let me tell you how merciful God has been to you. He's brought you here today and you've heard the gospel and you've heard a preacher like me up here speaking to you and exhorting you. And, he, and he, Christ commands you today. He commands you today to repent, which means to turn from your sins. And He commands you to trust in Him and Him alone, endeavoring to follow Him the rest of the days of your life. The instant you do that, you can be assured that you indeed are belong to God's people. Your sins forgived fully past, present, and the ones you've not yet to commit. The very righteousness that you don't have imputed to you because Jesus' perfect sinless life imputed to you. He'll give you a new heart with new desires. He will already given you that heart. And you will hate your sin and you will love righteousness and want to follow Him and want to be done with sin. See, that is evidence of somebody who's been born again. That is evidence of somebody who belongs to God's people. That is evidence of somebody that can be sure that the sacrifice has come for their sins and it's done, it's finished, it's paid for. As we move to a close this morning, I wonder how many times our friend Boris 
dreamed about reuniting with his wife, Anna. I wonder how many times he envisioned himself wrapping his arms around her and whispering to her, oh, how much he loved her and how much he missed her. But then the day came when he no longer had to imagine what that would be like because he saw her and he touched her and he heard her sweet voice. He realized that if you are trusting in Christ, that that day is coming. That day is coming that you will no longer have to imagine what it will be like to see your God face to face because you will see Him and you will feel Him and you will hear Him. Why? Because He is still Emmanuel. He is still God incarnate with us. When God the Son took on a human nature, He took it on forever. Jesus is in a body right now. His body, including His nail-scarred hands, will be the eternal witness to just how far your God would go to rescue you and unworthy sinners just like me. No one, I will promise you, has ever loved you that much. And no one ever will. Hope you're trusting in this Emmanuel today. Focus your thoughts on what Emmanuel means. God incarnate with us. And why that is astounding. And let that drive you to joy-filled worship this Christmas season. Let's pray. Our glorious God. Thank you for Emmanuel. Thank you that you would become a human like us. Thank you that you would come to be a human, so, travel such a long distance for us, to humble yourself, to live in a sin-soaked, fallen world by, around the very things that are, are so repulsive to you. And you would do it all, Christ, as you said, you had come not to bring judgment on the world. In your first coming, you had come to save the lost. You had come to offer as the high priest, the great high priest, the sacrifice for your people of yourself. Oh, we are so grateful that we have such a high priest who is merciful and who is faithful. Lord, we ask that today, if there be any here that are that are just unsure about whether they belong to you, and if they do indeed belong to you, you would bring such assurance to their hearts. And if there be any here today that, that have been deceived, thinking they are yours and they, they're not, that you would bring that conviction into their hearts and that you would grant them grace to repent and trust in Christ. Cause them to be born again. We know that your gospel is the power of God for salvation. Lord, we are grateful for this Christmas season that we get to reflect on just how astounding and shocking it is that our God would take on a human nature and why he would do it. And so we pray, Lord, that you would help us to be able to meditate, to be able to, 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 to take time to focus on, on this shocking, shocking mystery. And we ask for your blessings today. And thank you for being with us. In Christ's name. Amen. I invite you to stand to sing, Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery. <laughs>